Welcome to Angel's Audiobooks. The title's a work in progress, where I, your host, sit down with you with a nice cup of tea, snuggled in bed, and read books to you. Uploads will be divided into chapters of the book that we'll be doing, hopefully on a monthly basis, but I can't promise anything. (laughs) Now, settle in, cuddle with whatever you have on hand, let me take you on a little journey. Today, for the first book of this podcast, we'll be going through 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It tells the story of the rise and fall, birth and death of the mythical town of Macondo through the history of the Buendia family. Inventive, amusing, magnetic, sad and alive with unforgettable men and women, brimming with truth, compassion, and the lyrical magic that strikes the soul. This novel is a masterpiece in the art of fiction. Chapter 1 Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. At that time, Mokondo was a village of 20 adobe houses built on the bank of a river of clear water that ran along a bed of polished stones, which were white and enormous, like prehistoric eggs. The world was so recent that many things lacked names, and in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. Every year, during the month of March, a family of ragged gypsies would set up their tents near the village, and with a great uproar of pipes and kettle drums, they would display new inventions. First, they brought the magnet. A heavy gypsy with an untamed beard and sparrow hands, who introduced himself as Melchiades, put on a bold public demonstration of what he himself called the eighth wonder of the learned alchemists of Macedonia. He went from house to house, dragging two metal ingots, and everybody was amazed to see pots, pans, tongs, and braziers tumble down from their places, and beams creak from the desperation of nails and screws trying to emerge, and even objects that had been lost for a long time appeared from where they had been searched for most, and went dragging along in turbulent confusion behind Melchiades' magical irons. Things have a life of their own, the gypsy proclaimed with a harsh accent, It's simply a matter of waking up their souls. Jose Arcadio Buendia, whose unbridled imagination always went beyond the genius of nature and even beyond miracles and magic, thought that it would be possible to make use of that useless invention to extract gold from the bowels of the earth. Melchiades, who was an honest man, warned him, it won't work for that. But Jose Arcadio Buendia, at that time, did not believe in the honesty of gypsies. So he traded his mule 
and a pair of goats for the two magnetized ingots. Ursula Iguaran, his wife, who relied on those animals to increase their poor domestic holdings, was unable to dissuade him. Very soon, we'll have gold enough and most to pave the floors of the house, her husband replied. For several months, he worked hard to demonstrate the truth of his idea. He explored every inch of the region, even the riverbed, dragging the two iron ingots along and reciting Melchiades' incantation aloud. The only thing he succeeded in doing was to unearth a suit of 15th century armor, which had all of its pieces soldered together with rust, and inside of which there was the hollow resonance of an enormous stone-filled gourd. When Jose Arcadio Buendia and the four men of his expedition managed to take the armor apart, they found inside a calcified skeleton with a copper locket containing a woman's hair around its neck. In March, the gypsies returned. This time, they brought a telescope and a magnifying glass the size of a drum, which they exhibited as the latest discovery of the Jews of Amsterdam. They placed the gypsy women at one end of the village and set up the telescope at the entrance to the tent. For the price of five reales, people could look into the telescope and see the gypsy woman an arm's length away. Science has eliminated distance, Melchiades proclaimed. In a short time, man will be able to see what is happening in any place in the world without leaving his own house. A burning noonday sun brought out a startling demonstration with a gigantic magnifying glass. They put a pile of dry hay in the middle of the street and set it on fire by concentrating the sun's rays. Jose Arcadio Buendia, who had still not been consoled for the failure of his magnets, conceived the idea of using that invention as a weapon of war. Again, Melchiades tried to dissuade him, but he finally accepted the two magnetized ingots and three colonial coins in exchange for the magnifying glass. Ursula wept in consternation. That money was from a chest of gold coins that her father had put together over an entire life of privation, and that she had buried underneath her bed in hopes of a proper occasion to make use of it. Jose Cardio Bendia made no attempt to console her, completely absorbed in his tactical experiments with the abnegation of a scientist, even at the risk of his own life. In an attempt to show the effects of the glass on enemy troops, he exposed himself to the concentration of the sun's rays and suffered burns which turned into sores that took a long time to heal. Over the protests of his wife, who was alarmed at such a dangerous invention, at one point he was ready to set the house on fire. He would spend hours on end in his room calculating the strategic possibilities of his novel weapon until he succeeded in putting together a manual of startling instructional clarity and an irresistible power of conviction. He sent it to the government, accompanied by numerous descriptions of his experiments and several pages of explanatory sketches by a messenger who crossed the mountains 
got lost in measureless swamps, forded stormy rivers, and was on the point of perishing under the lash of despair, plague, and wild beasts, until he found a route that joined the one used by the mules that carried the mail. In spite of the fact that the trip to the capital was little less than impossible at the time, Jose Arcadio Buendia promised to undertake it as soon as the government ordered him to do so, so that he could put on some practical demonstration of his invention for the military authorities, and could train them himself in the complicated art of solar war. For several years, he waited for an answer. Finally, tired of waiting, he bemoaned to Melchiades the failure of his project, and the gypsy then gave him a convincing proof of its honesty. He gave him back the doubloons in exchange for the magnifying glass, and he left him, in addition, some Portuguese maps and several instruments of navigation. In his own handwriting, he set down a concise synthesis of the studies by monk Herman, which he left Jose Arcadio so that he would be able to make use of the astrolabe, the compass, and the sextant. Jose Arcadio Bendia spent the long months of the rainy season shut up in a small room that he had built in the rear of the house, so that no one would disturb his experiments. Having completely abandoned his domestic obligations, he spent entire nights in the courtyard watching the course of the stars, and he almost contracted sunstroke from trying to establish an exact method to ascertain noon. When he became an expert in the use and manipulation of his instruments, he conceived the notion of space that allowed him to navigate across unknown seas, to visit uninhabited territories, and to establish relations with splendid beings without having to leave his study. That was the period in which he acquired the habit of talking to himself, of walking through the house without paying attention to anyone, as Ursula and the children broke their backs in the garden, growing banana and caladium, cassava and yams, ahuyama roots and eggplants. Suddenly, without warning, his feverish activity was interrupted and was replaced by a kind of fascination. He spent several days as if he were bewitched, softly repeating to himself a string of fearful conjectures without giving credit to his own understanding. Finally, one Tuesday in December, at lunchtime, all at once, he released the whole weight of his torment. The children would remember for the rest of their lives the august solemnity with which their father, devastated by his prolonged vigil and by the wrath of his imagination, revealed his discovery to them. The earth is round, like an orange. Ursula lost her patience. If you have to go crazy, please go crazy all by yourself, she shouted. But don't try to put your gypsy ideas into the heads of the children. Jose Arcadio Bendia, impassive, did not let himself be frightened by the desperation of his wife, who, in a seizure of rage, smashed the astrolabe against the floor. He built another one. He gathered the men of the village in his little room 
and he demonstrated to them with theories that none of them could understand the possibility of returning to where one had set out by consistently sailing east. The whole village was convinced that Jose Arcadio Bendia had lost his reason when Melchiades returned to set things straight. He gave public praise to the intelligence of a man who, from pure astronomical speculation, had evolved a theory that had already been proven in practice, although unknown in Macondo until then. And, as a proof of his admiration, he made him a gift that was to have a profound influence on the future of the village, the laboratory of an alchemist. By then, Melchiades had aged with surprising rapidity. On his first trips, he seemed to be the same age as Jose Arcadio Bendia. But while the latter had preserved his extraordinary strength, which permitted him to pull down the horse by grabbing his ears, the gypsy seemed to have been worn down by some tenacious illness. It was, in reality, the result of multiple and rare diseases contracted on his innumerable trips around the world. According to what he himself said as he spoke to Jose Arcadio Bendia while helping him set up the laboratory, death followed him everywhere, sniffing at the cuffs of his pants, but never deciding to give him the final clutch of its claws. He was a fugitive from all the plagues and catastrophes that had ever unleashed mankind. He had survived Pelagra in Persia, scurvy in the Malayan archipelago, leprosy in Alexandria, beriberi in Japan, bubonic plague in Madagascar, an earthquake in Sicily, and a disastrous shipwreck in the Strait of Magellan. That prodigious creature, said to possess the keys of Nostradamus, was a gloomy man, enveloped in a sad aura, with an Asiatic look that seemed to know what there was on the other side of things. He wore a large black hat that looked like a raven with widespread wings, and a velvet vest across which the patina of the centuries had skated. But, in spite of his immense wisdom and his mysterious breadth, he had a human burden, an earthly condition that kept him involved in the small problems of daily life. He would complain of the ailments of old age. He suffered from the most insignificant economic difficulties, and he had stopped laughing a long time back because scurvy had made his teeth drop out. On that suffocating noontime, when the gypsy revealed his secrets, Jose Arcadio Bendia had the certainty that it was the beginning of a great friendship. The children were startled by his fantastic stories. Aureliano, who could not have been more than five at the time, would remember him for the rest of his life as he saw him that afternoon, sitting against the metallic and quivering light from the window, lighting up with his deep organ voice the darkest reaches of the imagination, while down over his temples there flowed the grease that was being melted by the heat. Jose Arcadio, his older brother, would pass on that wonderful image as a hereditary memory to all of his descendants. Ursula, on the other hand, held a bad memory of that visit, for she had entered the room just as Melchiades had carelessly broken a flask 
of bichloride of mercury. It's the smell of the devil, she said. Not at all, Melchiades corrected her. It has been proven that the devil has sulfuric properties, and this is just a little corrosive sublimate. Always didactic, he went into a learned exposition of the diabolical properties of cinnabar, but Ursula paid no attention to him, although she took the children off to pray. That biting odor would stay forever in her mind linked to the memory of Melchiades. The rudimentary laboratory, in addition to a profusion of pots, funnels, retorts, filters, and sieves, was made up of a primitive water pipe, a glass beaker with a long, tin neck, a reproduction of the philosopher's egg, and a still the gypsies themselves had built in accordance with modern descriptions of the tree-armed Allenby of Mary the Jew. Along with those items, Melchiades left samples of the seven metals that correspond to the seven planets, the formulas of Moses and Zosimus for doubling the quantity of gold, and a set of notes and sketches concerning the processes of the great teaching that would permit those who could interpret them to undertake the manufacture of the philosopher's stone. Seduced by the simplicity of the formulas to double the quantity of gold, Jose Arcadio Buendia paid court to Ursula for several weeks so that she would let him dig up her colonial coins and increase, increase them by as many times as it was possible to subdivide mercury. Ursula gave in, as always, to her husband's unyielding obstinacy. Then, Jose Arcadio Buendia threw three doubloons into a pan and fused them with copper fillings, or piment, brimstone, and lead. He put it all to boil in a pot of castor oil until he got a thick and pestilential syrup, which is more like common caramel than valuable gold. In risky and desperate processes of distillation, melted with the seven planetary metals, mixed with hermetic mercury and vitriol of Cyprus, and put back the cook in hog fat for lack of any radish oil, Ursula's precious inheritance was reduced to a large piece of burnt hog cracklings that was firmly stuck to the bottom of the pot. When the gypsies came back, Ursula had turned the whole population of the village against them. But curiosity was greater than fear. For that time, the gypsies went about the town making a deafening noise with all manner of musical instruments, while a hawker announced the exhibition of the most fabulous discovery of the Neshanshines, so that everyone went to the tent, and by paying one cent, they saw a youthful Melchiades, recovered, unwrinkled, with a new and flashing set of teeth. Those who remembered his gums that had been destroyed by scurvy, his flaccid cheeks, and his withered lips trembled with fear at the final proof of the gypsy's supernatural power. The fear turned into panic when Melchiades took out his teeth, intact, encased in their gums, and showed them to the audience for an instant. A fleeting instant in which he went back to being the same decrepit man of years past, 
and put them back again and smiled once more with the full control of his restored youth. Even Jose Arcadio Buendia himself considered that Melchiades's knowledge had reached unbearable extremes, but he felt a healthy excitement when the gypsy explained to him alone the workings of his false teeth. It seemed so simple and so prodigious at the same time that overnight he lost all interest in his experiments in alchemy. He underwent a new crisis of bad humor. He did not go back to eating regularly, and he would spend the day walking through the house. Incredible things are happening in the world, he said to Ursula. Right there across the river, there are all kinds of magical instruments, while we keep on living like donkeys. Those who had known him since the foundation of Makondo were startled at how much he had changed under Melchiades' influence. At first, Jose Arcadio Buendia had been a kind of youthful patriarch who would give instructions for planting and advice for the raising of children and animals, and who collaborated with everyone, even in the physical work, for the welfare of the community. Since his house from the very first had been the best in the village, the others had been built in its image and likeness. It had a small, well-lighted living room, a dining room in the shape of a terrace with gaily colored flowers, two bedrooms, a courtyard with a gigantic chestnut tree, a well-kept garden, and a coral where goats, pigs, and hens lived in peaceful communion. The only animals that were prohibited, not just in his house, but in the entire settlement, were fighting cocks. Ursula's capacity for work was the same as that of her husband. Active, small, severe, that woman of unbreakable nerves, who at no moment in her life had been heard to sing, seemed to be everywhere. From dawn until quite late at night, always pursued by the soft whispering of her stiff, starched petticoats. Thanks to her, the floors of tamped earth, the unwhitewashed mud walls, the rustic wooden furniture they had built themselves were always clean, and the old chests where they kept their clothes exhaled the warm smell of basil. Jose Arcadio Bendia, who was the most enterprising man ever to be seen in the village, had set up the placement of the houses in such a way that from all of them, one could reach the river and draw water with the same effort. And he had lined up the streets with such good sense that no house got more sun than another during the hot time of day. Within a few years, Makondo was a village that was more orderly and hardworking than any known until then by its 300 inhabitants. It was a truly happy village where no one was over 30 years of age, and where no one had died. Since the time of its founding, Jose Arcadio Buendia had built traps and cages. In a short time, he filled not only his own house, but all of those in the village with tropials, canaries, bee-eaters, and redbreasts. The concert of so many different birds became so disturbing that Ursula would plug her ears with beeswax so as not to lose her sense of reality. The first time that Melchiades' tribe arrived, selling glass balls for headaches, 
Everyone was surprised that they had been able to find that village lost in the drowsiness of the swamp. And the gypsies confessed that they had found their way by the song of the birds. That spirit of social initiative disappeared in a short time, pulled away by the fever of the magnets, the astronomical calculations, the dreams of transmutation, and the urge to discover the wonders of the world. From a clean and active man, Jose Arcadio Bendia changed into a man lazy in appearance, careless in his dress, with a wild beard that Ursula managed to trim with great effort, and a kitchen knife. There were many who considered him the victim of some strange spell, but even those most convinced of his madness left work and family to follow him when he brought out his tools to clear the land and asked the assembled group to open a way that would put Makondo in contact with the great inventions. Jose Arcadio Bendia was completely ignorant of the geography of the region. He knew that to the east there lay an impenetrable mountain chain, and that on the other side of the mountains there was the ancient city of Ryuhakcha, where in times past, according to what he had been told by the first Aureliano Bendia, his grandfather, Sir Francis Drake, had gone crocodile hunting with cannons and that he had repaired them and stuffed them with straw to bring to Queen Elizabeth. In his youth, Jose Arcadio Bendia and his men, with wives and children, animals, and all kinds of domestic implements, had crossed the mountains in search of an outlet to the sea. And after 26 months, they gave up the expedition and founded Makondo, so they would not have to go back. It was, therefore, a route that did not interest him, for it could lead only to the past. To the south lay the swamps, covered with an eternal vegetable scum and the whole vast universe of the great swamp, which, according to what the gypsy said, had no limits. The great swamp in the west mingled with the boundless extension of water, where there were soft-skinned cetaceans that had the head and torso of a woman, causing the ruination of sailors with the charm of their extraordinary breasts. The gypsies sailed along that route for six months before they reached the strip of land over which the mules that carried the mail passed. According to Jose Arcadio Bendia's calculations, the only possibility of contact with civilization lay along the northern route. So, he handed out clearing tools and hunting weapons to the same men who had been with him during the founding of Makondo. He threw his directional instruments and his maps into a knapsack, and he undertook the reckless adventure. During the first days, they did not come across any appreciable obstacle. They went down along the stony bank of the river to the place where, years before, they had found the soldier's armor, and from there, they went into the woods along a path between wild orange trees. At the end of the first week, they killed and roasted the deer, but they agreed to eat only half of it and salt the rest for the days that lay ahead. With that precaution, they tried to postpone the necessity of having to eat macaws, whose blue flesh had a harsh and mucky taste. Then, 
For more than 10 days, they did not see the sun again. The ground became soft and damp, like volcanic ash, and the vegetation was thicker and thicker, and the cries of the birds and the uproar of the monkeys became more and more remote, and the world became eternally sad. The men on the expedition felt overwhelmed by their most ancient memories in that paradise of dampness and silence, going back to before original sin, as their boots sank in the pools of steaming oil, and their machetes destroyed bloody lilies and golden salamanders. For a week, almost without speaking, they went ahead like sleepwalkers through a universe of grief, lighted only by the tenuous reflection of luminous insects, and their lungs were overwhelmed by a suffocating smell of blood. They could not return because the strip that they were opening as they went along would soon close up with a new vegetation that almost seemed to grow before their eyes. It's all right, Jose Arcadio Buendia would say. The main thing is not to lose our bearings. Always following his compass, he kept on guiding his men toward the invisible north so that they would be able to get out of that enchanted region. It was a thick night, starless, but the darkness was becoming impregnated with a fresh and clear air. Exhausted by the long crossing, they hung up their hammocks and slept deeply for the first time in two weeks. When they woke up, with the sun already high in the sky, they were speechless with fascination. Before them, surrounded by ferns and palm trees, white and powdery in the silent morning light, was an enormous Spanish galleon. Tilted slightly to the starboard, it had hanging from its intact masts the dirty rags of its sails in the midst of its rigging, which was adorned with orchids. The hull, covered with an armor of petrified barnacles and soil and soft moss, was firmly fastened into a surface of stones. The whole structure seemed to occupy its own space, one of solitude and oblivion, protected from the vices of time and the habits of the birds. Inside, where the expeditionaries explored with careful intent, there was nothing but a thick forest of flowers. The discovery of the galleon, an indication of the proximity of the sea, broke Jose Arcadio Buendia's drive. He considered it a trick of his whimsical fate to have searched for the sea without finding it, at the cost of countless sacrifices and suffering, and to have found it all of a sudden without looking for it, as if it lay across his path like an insurmountable object. Many years later, Colonel Aureliano Bendia crossed the region again, when it was already a regular mail route, and the only part of the ship he found was its burned-out frame in the midst of a field of poppies. Only then, convinced that the story had not been some product of his father's imagination, did he wonder how the galleon had been able to get inland to that spot? But Jose Arcadio Buendia did not concern himself with that when he found the sea after another four days' journey from the galleon. 
His dreams ended as he faced that ashen, foamy, dirty sea, which had not merited the risks and sacrifices of the adventure. God damn it, he shouted. Makondo is surrounded by water on all sides. The idea of a peninsular Makondo prevailed for a long time, inspired by the arbitrary map that Jose Arcadio Buendia sketched on his return from the expedition. He drew it in rage, evilly, exaggerating the difficulties of communication, as if to punish himself for the absolute lack of sense with which he had chosen the place. We'll never get anywhere, he lamented to Ursula. We're going to rot our lives away here without receiving the benefits of science. That certainty, mulled over for several months in the small room he used as his laboratory, brought him to the conception of the plan to move Makondo to a better place. But that time, Ursula had anticipated his feverish designs. With the secret and implacable labor of the small ant, she predisposed the women of the village against the flightiness of their husbands, who were already preparing for the move. Jose Arcadio Bendia did not know at what moment, or because of what adverse forces his plan had become enveloped in the web of protests, pretexts, disappointments, and evasions, until it turned into nothing but an illusion. Ursula watched him with innocent attention, and even felt some pity for him on the morning when she found him in the back room, muttering about his plans for moving, as he placed his laboratory pieces in their original boxes. She let him finish. She let him nail up the boxes and put his initials on them with an ink brush, without reproaching him. But knowing now that he knew, because she had heard him say so in his soft monologues, that the men of the village would not back him up in his undertaking. Only when he began to take down the door of the room did Ursula dare ask him what he was doing, and he answered with a certain bitterness. Since no one wants to leave, we'll leave all by ourselves. Ursula did not become upset. We will not leave, she said. We will stay here because we have had a son here. We have still not had a debt he said. A person does not belong to a place until there is someone dead under the ground. Ursula replied with a soft firmness, If I have to die for the rest of you to stay here, I will die. Jose Arcadio Bendia had not thought that his wife's will was so firm. He tried to seduce her with the charm of his fantasy with the promise of a prodigious world where all one had to do was sprinkle some magic liquid on the ground and the plants would bear fruit wherever a man wished, and where all manner of instruments against pain were sold at bargain prices. But Ursula was insensible to his clairvoyance. Instead of going around thinking about your crazy inventions, you should be worrying about your sons, she replied. Look at the state they're in, running wild just like donkeys. Jose Arcadio Bendia took his wife's words literally. He looked out the window and saw the barefoot children in the sunny garden, and he had the impression that only at that instant had they begun to exist, conceived by Ursula's spell. Something occurred inside of him then, something mysterious and definitive that uprooted him from his own time 
and carried him adrift through an unexplored region of his memory. While Ursula continued sweeping the house, which was safe now from being abandoned for the rest of her life, he stood there with an absorbed look, contemplating the children until his eyes became moist and he dried them with the back of his hand, exhaling a deep sigh of resignation. All right, he said. Tell them to come help me take the things out of the boxes. Jose Arcadio, the older of the children, was 14. He had a square head, thick hair, and his father's character. Although he had the same impulse for growth and physical strength, it was early evident that he lacked imagination. He had been conceived and born during the difficult crossing of the mountains, before the founding of Makondo, and his parents gave thanks to heaven when they saw he had no animal features. Aureliano, the first human being to be born in Makondo, would be six years old in March. He was silent and withdrawn. He had wept in his mother's womb and had been born with his eyes open. As they were cutting the umbilical cord, he moved his head from side to side, taking in the things in the room and examining the faces of the people with a fearless curiosity. Then, indifferent to those who came close to look at him, he kept his attention concentrated on the palm roof, which looked as if it were about to collapse under the tremendous pressure of the rain. Ursula did not remember the intensity of that look again until one day, when little Aureliano, at the age of three, went into the kitchen at the moment she was taking a pot of boiling soup from the stove and putting it on the table. The child, perplexed, said from the doorway, It's going to spill. The pot was firmly placed in the center of the table, but just as soon as the child made this announcement, it it began an unmistakable movement toward the edge, as if impelled by some inner dynamism, and it fell and broke on the floor. Ursula, alarmed, told her husband about the episode, but he interpreted it as a natural phenomenon. That was the way he always was, alien to the existence of his sons, partly because he considered childhood as a period of mental insufficiency, and partly because he was always too absorbed in his fantastic speculations. But since the afternoon, when he called the children in to help him unpack the things in the laboratory, He gave them his best hours in the small, separate room where the walls were gradually being covered by strange maps and fabulous drawings. He taught them to read and write and do sums, and he spoke to them about the wonders of the world, not only where his learning had extended, but forcing the limits of his imagination to extremes. It was in that way that the boys ended up learning that in the southern extremes of Africa, There were men so intelligent and peaceful that their only pastime was to sit and think, and that it was possible to cross the Aegean Sea on foot by jumping from island to island all the way to the port of Salonika. Those hallucinating sessions remained printed on the memories of the boys in such a way that many years later, a second before the regular army officer gave the firing squad the command to fire, Colonel Aureliano Buendia saw once more that warm March afternoon 
on which his father had interrupted the lesson in physics and stood fascinated with his hand in the air and his eyes motionless, listening to the distant pipes, drums, and jingles of the gypsies who were coming to the village once more, announcing the latest and most startling discovery of the sages of Memphis. They were new gypsies, young men and women who knew only their own language, handsome specimens with oily skins and intelligent hands, whose dances and music sowed the panic of uproarious joy through the streets, with parrots painted all colors reciting Italian arias, and a hen who laid a hundred golden eggs to the sound of a tambourine, and a trained monkey who read minds, and the multiple use machine that could be used at the same time to sew on buttons and reduce fevers, and the apparatus to make a person forget his bad memories, and a poultice to lose time, and a thousand more inventions so ingenious and unusual that Jose Arcadio Buendia must have wanted to invent a memory machine so that he could remember them all. In an instant, they transformed the village. The inhabitants of Macondo found themselves lost in their own streets, confused by the crowded fair. Holding a child by each hand so as not to lose them in the tumult, bumping into acrobats with gold-capped teeth and jugglers with six arms, suffocated by the mingled breath of manure and sandals that the crowd exhaled. Jose Arcadio Bendia went about everywhere like a madman, looking for Melchiades so that he could reveal to him the infinite secrets of that fabulous nightmare. He asked several gypsies who did not understand his language. Finally, he reached the place where Melchiades used to set up his tent, and he found a taciturn Armenian who, in Spanish, was hawking a syrup to make oneself invisible. He had drunk down a glass of the amber substance in one gulp, as Jose Arcadio Bendia elbowed his way through the absorbed group that was witnessing the spectacle, and was able to ask his question. The gypsy wrapped him in the frightful climate of his look, before he turned into a puddle of pestilential and smoking pitch, over which the echo of his reply still floated. Melchiades is dead. Upset by the news, Jose Arcadio Bendia stood motionless, trying to rise above his affliction, until the group dispersed, called away by other artifices, and the puddle of the taciturn Armenian evaporated completely. Other gypsies confirmed later on that Melchiades had in fact succumbed to the fever on the beach at Singapore, and that his body had been thrown into the deepest part of the Java Sea. The children had no interest in their news. They insisted that their father take them to see the overwhelming novelty of the sages of Memphis that was being advertised at the entrance of a tent that, according to what was said, had belonged to King Solomon. They insisted so much that Jose Arcadio Bendia paid the 30 reales and laid them into the center of the tent where there was a giant with a hairy torso and a shaved head with a copper ring in his nose and a heavy iron chain on his ankle watching over a pirate chest. When it was opened by the giant, the chest gave off a glacial exhalation. Inside, there was only an enormous transparent block with infinite internal needles in which the light of the sunset was broken up into colored stars. 
disconcerted, knowing that the children were waiting for an immediate explanation. Jose Arcadio Bendia ventured a murmur. It's the largest diamond in the world. No, the gypsy countered. It's ice. Jose Arcadio Bendia, without understanding, stretched out his hand toward the cake, but the giant moved it away. Five reales more to touch it, he said. Jose Arcadio Bendia paid them and put his hand on the ice and held it there for several minutes at his heart filled with fear and jubilation at the contact with mystery. Without knowing what to say, he paid 10 reales more so that his sons could have that prodigious experience. Little Jose Arcadio refused to touch it. Aureliano, on the other hand, took a step forward and put his hand on it, withdrawing it immediately. It's boiling, he exclaimed, startled. But his father paid no attention to him. Intoxicated by the evidence of the miracle, he forgot at that moment about the frustration of his delirious undertakings and Melchiades' body, abandoned to the appetite of the squids. He paid another five reales and doned to the appetite He paid another five reales, and with his hand on the cake, as if giving testimony on the holy scriptures, he exclaimed, This is the great invention of our time.